Okay, grab a seat, everybody. I don't know about this greeting thing. It's like you guys actually like each other and want to keep talking. Good morning. We are in the last week of our season of foundations. Next week, we begin the season of Advent, where we start preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus, not only when he came before, but looking forward to when he comes again. And we've been working our way through Judges and 1 Samuel, looking at the people God uses. We've talked about Samson, we've talked about Hannah, we've talked about Samuel. Today we're going to look at what the heading in your Bible may say is Samuel's farewell speech in 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 25 of 1 Samuel 12. You can follow along with me. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. And Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. And then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then stand here, because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous act, acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, that we will, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side, so that you lived securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if, you bo if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then stand still and see the great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest? Now I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. And then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. And the people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. 
For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Now we're moving once again to the end of an era. The king, Saul, is now in place. And I want you to see that the text is very intentional here. We often forget that there's a method to the way this text was put together. We, we sometimes think it dropped out of the sky. Well, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the text, but they put things together in a very intentional way to communicate something that God wanted to communicate. And chapter 12 comes right on the heels of chapter 11, which is the story of a major victory for the new king. Last week, we talked about the people asking for a new king and how in this time of instability, uh, they, they worked so hard to make it better their way by finding a king instead of trusting in God, who was their king already. And when Saul was finally revealed to the people in chapter 10, I mentioned last week, he was hiding in the baggage of those who had come from far away for the festivities. Behold your king, and then they couldn't find him. He's hiding under the suitcases. But even with that, most of them, when he was presented, said, long live the king. But in chapter 10, verse 27, there's a little note there, and it says, but some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? And they despised him and brought no gifts, but Saul kept silent. You see, there was, there was some people that weren't buying into Saul. They said, what's he doing hiding under the luggage? How's this guy going to help us? And so they didn't honor him by bringing gifts. And in chapter 11, a crisis hits. The Ammonites set up siege against the people in the area of Jabesh Gilead. And they send a message to Saul. And Saul rallies the people and comes to their rescue and saves the day. And this solidifies his kingship. If you look at the end of, of chapter 11, or at least verses 12 to 15, then the people said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Who were these naysayers? Bring these men and we will put them to death. But Saul said, no one shall be put to death today, for on this day the Lord has rescued Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, come let us go to Gilgal and reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. And there they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites had a great celebration. On the heels of this victory, and finally the whole country is rallied behind Saul, our text, chapter 12, follows immediately after it. And it really is, you have to realize, it's an early farewell speech. It's actually a way too early farewell speech. Because Samuel, if you follow the text, he, he stays around for a long time after his farewell speech. He actually stays around to anoint David 27 years later to be Saul's successor. And he doesn't die until chapter 25, which is actually about, the, the scholars say, 38 years later. And even after he's dead in chapter 28, Saul goes to a witch to kind of call up the spirit of Samuel to get advice about a battle. Even after he's dead, Samuel's still hanging around, right? Giving advice. This is a very early farewell speech. So why include it here in the text? Why is it here? Why did, why did Samuel make the speech here? Why is it here? Because last words, farewell speeches, are very important. Even if there are lots of words that come after them. These were his last words as the leader of the nation. One of the questions in the study guide this week is, if you could only say one more sentence your entire life, 
what would you say? What would be, if you only had one sentence left that you could speak, what? Because these last words are important. And what you see in the words of Samuel in this way too early farewell speech, first we see a story of comparison and contrast. Look at verses 2 to 5 of chapter 12. It's kind of weird. He says, I'm here, I'm old and gray, my sons are here. Now verse 3, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed, which is the king. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? This is kind of a weird handing the torch over, isn't it? It's like, it almost feels like he has this ego that needs to be fulfilled. Tell me, have I been honest or not? But that's not what's going on. Remember what he warned them back in chapter 8 about the king? And he said, the king will take these things from you. And, and what he's doing is he's saying, when God is your king, none of those things were taken from you. I haven't done any of that. But you've chosen a king, and the king's going to take your sons for battle. He's going to take a, a, a portion of your crops. He's going to take all these things from you. Right? He's comparing and contrasting leadership with God as their king and leadership with a man as their king. And then he goes over exactly what we talked about last week. He, he, he says the people of Israel have been doing this all along, he gives them a powerful history lesson. In verse 8, he says, Back when you were in trouble in Egypt, God sent Moses and Aaron to save you. In verse 9, but you forgot the Lord your God, and you became slaves to the oppressing nations all around you. Verse 10, and you cried out to God, help us, help us. In verse 11, and God sent judge after judge after judge to you to help you. Verse 12, but then you saw trouble on the horizon, and you said, oh, we need a king. Well, verse 13, now you have one. 14 and 15, now fear God as you follow this king because you people are always going back over and over in the same cycle. And he gives them this powerful visual lesson. In, in harvest time, in that area, it never rained. It was the dry season of the year. And he says, isn't it wheat harvest? Just watch, just to show you that what I'm telling you is true Thunder and rain are going to come. And he cries out to the Lord and the thunder and rain comes that never comes in harvest season. And the people know. They realize. It says they stand in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. You see, just like we talked about last week, there was this process. Samuel peels back the layers of the history of his people. And God verifies it with thunder and rain. To say once again, there's a repeated process going on in the people. Remember last week we talked about how our disappointment in human beings or sometimes in ourselves leads us to a feeling of instability and we begin to compare ourselves to others and then we refuse to listen to what God has to say and then we get deceived by our own perceptions, our own understanding of what's happening and we get off track. Well, today we see a similar process that goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity and their interactions with God. It's a process that lies at the root of this break between God and humanity. And it starts as God gives one thing, right? As you look at Samuel's history lesson, there's a phrase that repeats in verse 8 and verse 11, and the Lord sent. And the Lord sent, right? There was another, uh, I read it, even as I read it. Ah. 
I lost it now. I read it and I thought that would be a good point. I should add that in. And now it's in, it's in there talking about God giving people. God's given you these things all along the way. The emphasis here is saying, Samuel saying, God has given you all along what you needed. God gives one thing, but in each of these cases, humanity seeks another. Verse 9 and 10, but they forgot the Lord their God. Verse 12 and 13, now we want a king to rule over us. And he says, there's this process where God gives one thing, and you guys say, yeah, I think I want this thing. When I think about wanting things, I know it's my, my base carnal instincts, but Snickers bars come to my mind. <laughs> and you may have, I don't know if you've seen this, but they have created a supersized Snickers bar. I, of course, I would find this on the internet. This is the kind of thing I look for on the internet. See how big that is? What if I was to say to 10 of you today, if there were 10 of you in this church, and I would say, I'm going to give you a Snickers. Look at that big Snickers bar. I'm going to give you a Snickers. How many of you, and I've actually staged it. I have five down here, and there's five for Balcony Church. Okay? But what I need are five volunteers to come up and stand here, and five people to go see Reed up there. Come on up. Come on up, the five. Okay, well, stop, stop. Okay. All right. We have five here. Balcony Church, you guys are so slow. Nobody's even moving up. No, no, it's up there. It's up there. Go that way. No, Rhea, Rhea, yeah. go that way. Quick, quick, quick. Okay. Now, you see that big Snickers, right? Yeah. Well, I can't afford a big Snickers, so what I'm actually going to give you is a Snickers bite. Right? You can each have one. Take one of those. All right? Are we supposed to eat it? You can eat it and go, it's all, it's all food safe and everything. Now, here's... Why would you do that, Jeff? That's a weird one. Here's my point. <laughs> Honestly, you 10, how many of you are a little disappointed that it wasn't that Snickers? Right? And you guys are disappointed too, right? Now, had I not shown you the picture of that Snickers and I said to you, I'm going to give you a free Snickers bite today, how many of you would have been happy to get a free Snickers bite? Hey, I got a free Snickers bite. That's awesome. But when we see something else, we think, I'm not, I'm not real happy with what I got. I, I want something else. It's, it's a human tendency. And the, the reality is, no one needs that Snickers, right? None of your parents would have been happy if I'd given that to your kids, right? No, I, I'm doing something good for you. I'm giving you just a taste of a Snickers bar. And yet, we, we feel a little disappointed because we could have had that. Aren't we fickle that way? Why can't we be happy with something good when something else is in our minds? That's a human tendency, it, it, it comes right to the heart of who we are that we seem to always want more than what we're actually experiencing. And, and I think it, it, in that we hear echoes of Eden. Some of you that were in Sunday school this morning, Bruce McBride really hit on this point. And I promise, I do come up with my sermon before he does Sunday school. I don't go there to get my sermon. But, but remember the Genesis story, God creates humanity in his image. Remember that? And the serpent shows up and says, hmm, why can't you eat from that fruit? And Eve says, well, that, we can eat from everything else, but, but we can't eat that. And she even says, we can't even touch it. And the serpent says, oh, God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat that, you will be what? Like God. Now, here's the story. Remember, they were created in God's image. And, and the serpent says, if you just eat that, you'll be like God. And it says in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, 
pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, I want you to realize something. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but nowhere are we ever told that they're not going to learn the knowledge of good and evil. They're just, God says, don't eat from that. Let me teach you the reality. And what Eve says is, I think I want that instead. God gives one thing. Humanity wants another. You know, in a word, in one word, it's idolatry. That's what it is. In that moment of taking the fruit, Eve says, and Adam says too, we know better. We exalt who we are, the self, above God as an idol. I'm going to worship what I want and not follow the direction of God. And we know all about idols. It goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And I remember growing up, seeing, thinking about idols and being taught in Sunday school about the statues that people would bow down to and you know, we don't really have those kind of idols, at least not in North America today. And so the teachers would make references to the things that we worship, you know. And, but it never was really real to me. But I've been reading this guy, N.T. Wright, a lot lately. And, and I put an insert in the bulletin. You can tell. When Christine does an insert, it's beautiful and it's color. And when I do an insert, it's like a book, just text. Yeah, so the, Christine has her gifts and hopefully I have mine. Um, But I I quoted significantly from him on idolatry because he's helped me see things a a, a different way. There's a quote uh, on the the front of it. I'll I'll put put it on the screen, then I'm going to read the rest of it to you. These other gods are not strangers. The ancient world knew them well. Just to name the three most obvious, there are Mars, the god of war, Mammon, the god of money, and Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love. Today's Western world hardly needs reminding about the place of Mammon, the worship of money in our society. And on the insert, it continues, these ancient and well-known gods have not gone away. They've not been banished upstairs, but are present and powerful, all the most, more so for being unrecognized. In what sense are they divine? Well, the ancients would have no trouble answering that. First, those who worship gods become like them. Their characters are formed as they imitate the object of worship and imbibe its inner essence. Second, worshiping then demands sacrifices. And those sacrifices are often human. You hardly need me to spell out the point. How many million children, born or indeed unborn, have been sacrificed on the altar of Aphrodite, denied a secure upbringing because the demands of erotic desire keep one or both parents on the move? How many million lives have been blighted by money, whether by not having it or worse, by having too much of it? And how many are being torn apart as we speak by the incessant demands of power, violence, and war. Now, please note, I'm not saying sex is evil. I'm not saying money is bad in itself. I'm not even saying that there's never a place for force in defending the weak against violent evil or unjust tyranny. I am neither a killjoy, a Marxist, nor a pacifist. And I bolded this on the insert. My point is that our society claiming to have got rid of God upstairs so that we can live our own lives the way we want, corporately and individually, has in fact fallen back into the clutches of forces and energies that are bigger than ourselves, more powerful than the sum total of people who give them allegiance, forces we might as well recognize as gods. He's saying we are bowing to these idols every day. God's given one thing, and we choose another. We still worship these gods of the past, Mammon and Mars and Aphrodite, but in subtle ways that we don't always realize. 
We build our lives on a different value system, one very different than what we see in Jesus and the kingdom of God. It's an echo of the Garden of Eden. It's seen in Samuel's history lesson to people in a word. It's idolatry. It's the elevation of the self and what we want over what God wants to give us. And there's there's something else in the text. In another word, guilty. In verse 19, the people know it is true. Oh, my goodness. Samuel's words, bolstered by the thunder and rain, help people to see their mistake. You know, the same thing can happen to us as we we sit and reflect on our life and what we're actually seeking, what we're actually chasing after, what, what we see as success and the things that we long for. We begin to see that we are bowing to these idols over and over instead of surrendering to God who calls us to something very, very different. Our grasping comes into focus as we read these stories, as we look at the text. And in Hebrews 4, it says the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And it hurts when you begin to realize this. When you realize that so much of your time and effort is spent chasing pleasure or money or power that we're bowing to idols that are so contrary to what God would call us to bow to. It hurt for Samuel's listeners. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. You've got to wonder how Saul felt at this moment. He's standing there and everybody's like, oh, we made a horrible mistake. We've done the worst sin ever. We picked that guy over God. The guy we rejected for Saul is the one guy that we need to intercede for. Samuel, please pray for us that God will forgive us. And and I love this text because we look at Samuel's response and he says, good news, do not fear. (laughs) All is not lost. They've made mistakes, but there is still hope because of who God is. Samuel says he won't forsake you. And Samuel, in his wisdom, calls them to surrender. I want to leave you three very specific things I see in his response. Things that bring life, I think, to where we are today. When we realize that we've spent our life seeking pleasure and money and power and control over... And maybe it's not like... Maybe you're not greedy and have a, you know, a mansion on a hilltop and people are starving all the way around. But maybe you just have to hoard what you have and you want to be in charge of your life. You don't want people to infringe it. Maybe that's the way you worship these idols. But something that brings life to our need that I think Samuel says is that the past does not dictate the future. What you have done in the past does not dictate what comes in the future. Verse 20, do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Now I want you to notice something. He doesn't deny the past. He doesn't say, oh, it's no big deal, guys. (laughs) Feel good about yourself. I want you to feel positive and built. He says, yeah, you really messed up. You have done all this evil. There's no doubt. But what he's saying is that that you've done in the past doesn't dictate the future. In fact, part of coming to the point of, of, of repentance is realizing the reality of what you've done in the past, how you've worshipped those gods and those idols. But it does not dictate where we go. In 1 John 
5.21, John writes, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's still in the New Testament. All these years later, it's a call. Keep yourselves from idols. And in verse 21 of our text, it says, Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. Now, the good news is, despite what we've done, our past does not dictate our future. Do you get that? That's good news. Anybody ashamed of some things in your past? Raise your hand. Confess. Here we go. Right? I'm ashamed of a lot of things in my past. And Samuel says to me, you did all that evil, Jeff. Yes, you did. But that doesn't dictate what's coming. And you know why? He says, because God is faithful by his very nature. That's who he is. Verse 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. There's something inherent in God that is faithful. We, have, we know this when we have relationships with people. Uh, my father was a lovely man. He wasn't perfect in any way, but I knew one thing about my dad, and that is that he would never lie. My dad always told the truth. That was a huge value. And if I ever heard anybody accuse my dad of lying, I knew either they didn't understand what he'd said, there was, but my dad did not lie. That was a part of his very nature. I always knew that. I could bank on that because I knew my dad. And what Samuel's saying is God is faithful. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter what you've done. That is his very, because of the sake of his great name, he's faithful. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Now, some of you are saying, well, I don't like that disown part. I, and, and I, I, you know, that's a bit scary, I think. But I, I, I think when we think that we've disowned God, what we're really thinking about is we've messed up. We've been faithless. We haven't lived as we should. So let's just leave the disown part. I'm, it's there. I'm not denying that it's there. But I'm saying my big worry is not that I've disowned God. I love God. I'm, my, my big worry is that I've been faithless. I haven't acted in the way that I should have. And I love what it says there. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he can't, that's just who he is. He can't disown himself. He can't be different. Hebrews echoes the same idea. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. So what do we do? If, if that's true, if our past does not dictate our future because of the faithfulness of God... How do we live into that? How do we live into the future? How do we live into the faithfulness of God? And here's what I want you to see how Scripture speaks, and you're going to laugh at me. I think Samuel is calling the people to our four commitments. I really do, because what he actually says in the text is surrender to learn and worship and serve together. Look at what he says. Verse 23, he says, I will pray for you. There's a relationship here. And in verse 24, he says, you as a people, it's plural, you have to live differently. There's this relational aspect to what he's saying. In verse 23, he says, I will teach you what is good and what is not. There are things you're going to have to learn. And he says in verse 24, fear the Lord and later on consider the great things he has done for you. That's worship. That's what it is. In verse 24, and serve him faithfully with all your heart, which is mission. 
That's, you know, in Acts 2, we don't have to pull up Acts 2, but this, this passage in Acts 2 is what we base, you know, where it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. That's what we base our commitments on. But I see them, and even in your sale, oh, Jeff, you just read into it. You're just finding what you look for. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But the truth is, our past doesn't dictate our future, and God is faithful. And what I have found is if you want to grow into that, that worship and learning and mission and relationships are four commitments that will help you to do it. You know, our, our vision at this church, this animates and motivates me. I hope it does you. We have a phrase on the board out there that what we envision is lives renewed, our community transformed by the power of the gospel. Think about that. Lives renewed. How many of you would like to see lives renewed? How many of you would like to see hope transformed? Right? By the power of the gospel. That, that's what we long for. That's the vision we want to rally around. And what we've said is, if we can commit to mission and worship God together, and if we can live together with one another, even though we drive each other crazy sometimes, and if we can take the time to focus and learn what the Scripture's teaching us, if we can do that, we believe that our lives will be renewed by, by the power of the gospel, that our community will be transformed by the power of the gospel. I, it's simple, right? And, and this is what we are all about. And I just want to, let me just say this. If I had to give a farewell speech, hopefully if this is my farewell speech, it's one many years before I actually farewell, right? But that's what it would say. It would say, as we as a body forget the past, let God shape our future by his faithfulness, as we commit to mission, relationships, learning, and worship, God will renew our lives and transform our community by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we want to be this, this catalyst in this community. We want to see people come to know you and be transformed. We want to see them experience the presence of God in their lives. We want lives to be renewed, starting with ours and flowing out to others. And, and we want to see that renewal transform this community of hope into a place where people are built up and not torn down, where, where relationships that are broken are healed where forgiveness flows and where, where your name is exalted and people realize that you are the one who has made all of this possible. That's what we long for. God, just help us to surrender to what you are offering instead of looking for something else to fulfill our lives. Help us to turn away from these idols that we give our lives to and surrender to you as king and leader. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's that, that's what God offers. He offers you the relationship of child of God. And the idols offer you a spirit of slavery and fear. And I, I don't know what it looks like in your life. In fact, it, it takes the Holy Spirit. Thank goodness it's not my job to show you that. It's the Spirit's job. The Spirit lives in you. And if you go out there this week and you say, show me where I'm holding on to these idols and it's given me a, slave, a, 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 a spirit of fear and slavery and help me to let go of that and to be a child of God. If you start asking God to do that through His Spirit, He will show you and He will set you free, which will renew your life, transform the community by the power of the gospel. And that's my prayer for you this week. Amen.